All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to come together and to celebrate your grace, to celebrate all you've done to redeem us, to celebrate your glory and celebrate your love for us. Uh, we pray that you would make your word clear to us and that you would help us to digest it and it would be part of our outlook on life. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word correctly and we pray that you would uh, bless us as we try to think through it. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. The vision or the GCF vision is a term we use a lot, but we haven't really had a thorough teaching on it since Greg was teaching at RCF at Wright State. So the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And there's basically five of them um, that we're focusing on. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So we are still on subsection five, and... Uh, and today, I think, is actually the last sermon of subsection five. And next, next week, we'll do a conclusion sermon. Uh, but anyways, today's sermon is titled Reasons for a Victorious Eschatology Part Two. I tried to fit all of this into one sermon last week, and then I realized it was going to take more than an hour. Uh, so last week, we started talking about it, but we didn't finish. So we're going to get into a little bit of review and then we'll, we'll finish what we didn't finish last week. So last week, we started looking at several passages that point to there being major gospel progress in the church age. Today, we're just going to look at two of them for review's sake. The first one we looked at was in Daniel chapter 2, where, uh, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel tells him his dream and then interprets it to him. Today, we're just going to read the interpretation. Let's read Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 through 45. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven, has given the dominion, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And in a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, 
A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So God has given Nebuchadnezzar a dream to know which kingdoms are going to come after Babylon, but he only mentions three of them. He only goes as far as Rome, or maybe only as far as Greece, depending on how you interpret it, but he definitely doesn't tell him anything further than Rome. Why, why is the kingdom of heaven prophesied uh, and nothing else between it? What about the United States? What about Great Britain? The reason he only goes as far as Rome is because the kingdom of heaven comes to earth in the days of Rome. And then it keeps growing until it fills the earth. And then it crushes all those kingdoms. I also want to point out something that occurred to me as I was reading it. So God says that the kingdom is going to crush those kingdoms. But those kingdoms were Rome and Greece and Medo-Persia. But if the kingdom doesn't come till past the year 2000, then those kingdoms fell apart uh, just completely unrelated to the kingdom of heaven. So this just isn't true unless the kingdom came in the days of Rome. The kingdom did come in the days of Rome, and it will keep growing until it's a mountain that fills the earth. We see this in the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Three measures of flour, by the way, is 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. But a little, a little leaven will make it through the whole thing. So we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the kingdom of heaven is going to come and it's going to grow slowly over time like a mustard seed until it fills the whole earth. And we see with certainty uh, in the New Testament that the kingdom of heaven came when Jesus came or in the first century. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This isn't people who have been hiding away in some corner for 2,000 years being miraculously preserved somehow, and no one knows that they're alive. You know, they all died in the first century. The kingdom of heaven came in the first century, and it's been coming and is continuing to come ever since. So we looked at those two verses, uh, and those are very clear about the timeline that they're speaking about. But we also looked at uh, several passages that don't necessarily have as clear of a timeline, a timeline association with them. Uh, but let's look at just a, a quick handful of them real quick. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 86, verse 9 and 10. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. 
Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the, the name of the Lord, and the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Psalm 138, verses 4 and 5. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Amen. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. Turn to me to, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in a righteousness, a word that shall not return. To, to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Habakkuk 2, 13 and 14. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And lastly, Revelation 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So again, the Daniel passage has a clear timeline association. The Matthew passage we looked at has a clear timeline association. These other passages we just looked at, they don't have a clear timeline association. So when are they going to be fulfilled? We also looked at, there's only three possibilities of when these could be fulfilled. There's only three, three things people consider uh, the first one's a future millennium, uh, the second one is the eternal state, and the third one is the church age. So we looked at each of those in detail, but we don't have time uh, to look back at it again, or else this wouldn't really be review. It would just be saying the same thing again. But I will briefly go over what we talked about um, somewhat. So there are multiple reasons to think that there won't be a future millennium and that the millennium reign is the reigning of Christians who are in the intermediate state during the church age. And if, if you would like to hear more about that or if that sounds interesting or if it sounds implausible or ridiculous, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, I would recommend you go to our website or our YouTube channel or our Spotify and re-listen to it. So the other possibility is the eternal state. And, but we looked at Isaiah 65 and how in this time of major prosperity of, of the kingdom of God, there's still going to be death. And not only is there still going to be death, but there's still going to be sin. Because it says the sinner will die at 100. So there's still going to be sin and death. So that can't be talking about the eternal state. And if that's not talking about the eternal state, odds are none of these passages are talking about the eternal state. And so if, if there's no future millennium, and it's not going to be in the eternal state, then these promises have to be fulfilled in the church age. And there is very good reason to believe they will be. So we talked about that, and then the part we didn't get to, which we'll get to today, is addressing objections. There are some passages that seemingly contradict or seemingly don't go along with very well this idea that the gospel is going to make major progress in every nation before Christ's return. Uh, we've got five or so of them we're going to look at. All 
All right, the first idea we're going to look at is all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. If the gospel is going to make major progress in every single nation, does that idea contradict the idea that all who desire to live godly will be persecuted? Some people think that it does, uh, thinking that if persecu- that would have to mean persecution is just going to be commonplace throughout the church age. But we're going to see that that's not necessarily so. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I would just say that this might not be referring to the entire church age. And my biggest reason for that, frankly, doesn't come from Scripture. But your parents' generation wasn't persecuted. Not in America. And their parents weren't persecuted, and their parents weren't persecuted unless maybe they were part of some minority part of Christianity. But in so far, you've probably never been persecuted either. So the idea that this applies to all Christians in all places contradicts your life and your parents' life, odds are, if it means human persecution or persecution from humans. So, and again, it, it's, it's possible that he was just talking about in his day and age. But if it's not talking about every time and every place, which it doesn't seem to be, then it doesn't contradict the the idea that the gospel will one day gain major influence all over the world. So that's one way it can work with the idea that the gospel will have major influence all over the world. There's two more possibilities of how it could work with that. The second one is that If Christianity were to grow at a steady percentage for the entire church age, then its growth would be exponential. If something keeps growing at a certain percentage, then it grows exponentially. So if Christianity's growth rate were exponential, or is, and it probably will be, and has been, it would be entirely possible for persecution to be a normal thing throughout most of the church age, but then towards the end of the church age for it to rapidly diminish. I would consider that another possibility. And then the last possibility of how this passage still fits with the idea that there's going to be major gospel progress all over the world uh, is that this might not be only referring to persecution from humans. Most Christians in America have never been persecuted by humans, but all Christians experience the results of spiritual warfare in one way or another. You know, we, we've all had, we all have temptations from our flesh and sinfulness, but we all have temptations that are caused by demons. We all have, to some degree, some measure of persecution from demons. So that could be another way that that passage works out. But either way, I would say that The idea that all who desire to live godly will be persecuted doesn't contradict the idea that that the gospel will make major progress all over the world. All right, we're going to keep looking at passages from the Timothy letters. So in the, another thing, let's look at 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. So a lot of people today read that and think, 
it's going to be real bad in the end times, brother. More and more Christians are going to be falling away from Christ. But that's not what this is talking about. Not in the end of the church age, at least. So if if you continue to read the passage in its context, if you read the rest of the verses, it really sounds like Paul is prophesying the heresy of Gnosticism. So let's read the verses in their context. Let's read from verse 1 through verse 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insecurity of liars whose consciousness is our seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So Paul explicitly says that the people he's talking about Uh, not only will they be committed to the teaching of demons, but they will forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. And I think he's prophesying Gnosticism, which came in the second century and lasted till the third century. So Gnosticism was a heresy, and it held that the material world is bad and the spirit world is good. Uh, Gnosticism also held that there must have been another lesser God who was inferior to Yahweh who created the physical world. The reason behind that being the idea that since God is good and the material world is evil, the material world must have been created by an evil and inferior deity. So that's definitely a demonic idea. That's idolatry. That's not true. And um, Christians who bought into Gnosticism, started to struggle with the idea of the Incarnation, which led to another heresy called uh, Docetism, which is the idea that Jesus didn't really become a man, he just somehow looked like one. But both of those are very much opposed to the Gospel. Those are demonic teachings, demonic ideas. Not only that, but a lot of Gnostics held that the body must be checked by strict asceticism. Part of their strictness was forbidding marriage and forbidding certain foods. After all, if everything having to do with the body is bad, then sex is bad. And if sex is bad, then marriage is bad. If we shouldn't be allowing people to have sex, why are we allowing them to get married? So these people were forbidding marriage. And if the body is evil, then strong bodily desires are also evil. If your body desires a good hearty steak, well, I guess you just have to deprive it of that desire. At least in Gnosticism. Thank God we're not Gnostics. (laughs) So Gnostics forbade marriage, and they required abstinence from foods that God created to be received from Thanksgiving, and they clearly held to demonic doctrines, which means this passage is most likely talking about things that happened in the second and third century. Gnosticism fits Paul's description exactly. I also want to say, we need to stop reading prophecy, especially as if everything's about us. We need to not think that everything revolves around 21st century America. Most things don't. 
Paul says in latter times, you know, people are going to go for a certain heresy and they're going to forbid marriage and certain foods. And that happened down to detail in the second century. And since that happened down to detail, that's probably what Paul was prophesying. So the idea that in latter times, you know, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, that does not at all contradict the idea that the gospel is going to make major progress all over the world because it's probably prophesying Gnosticism, which came in the second century and was gone by the end of the third century. All right, let's keep working our way through the Timothys. In the last days, people will be lovers of self. Let's read 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So I've got a few things to say about this passage. First off, the last days started at Pentecost. So this does not at all necessarily mean just before Jesus returns. Let's look at Acts 2, verses 14 through 18. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days shall it be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So according to Peter, the last days started at Pentecost. So this this passage where Paul is saying in the last days people will be lovers of self is not in any way necessarily talking about just before Christ's second coming. The second thing I want to point out, Paul was saying that such people were going to be alive during Timothy's life. Let's look at the next verse, 2 Timothy 3 verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Why would he tell them to avoid such people if they're not going to come for 2,000 years? They were alive in Timothy's day. The letters to Timothy were written primarily to Timothy and secondarily to us. We need to stop thinking that everything is primarily about us. And my biggest reason for why this passage doesn't contradict the idea that the gospel is going to make major progress all over the world is because nowhere does it say this will be the majority of Christians. In fact, it says the exact opposite, the exact opposite. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3 verses 8 and 9, just a few verses later. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men will also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. 
as it was with these two men. So your foolishness being plain to everyone is the exact opposite of everyone going along with you. So this is not, whenever it's talking about, whatever time period it happens in, is not talking about the majority of Christians. It can't be, else it wouldn't be true what Paul was saying, that, uh, that their folly will be plain to everyone. This is talking about the minority of Christians in whatever time it ends up taking place. And it could have taken place any time between Pentecost and Christ's second coming. All right, now we'll get to somewhat the actual difficult ones. The narrow gate and the narrow door. Let's look at Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, there are a few ways that I would say this passage can work with the idea that the gospel is going to make major progress all over the world before Christ comes back. First off, it is possible that Jesus is only describing how things are in his day. In, all, in these two verses, uh, in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, the future tense isn't used at all for any word in these two verses. So he could be just describing conditions in his day especially since he was talking to people in his day, because the Bible isn't primarily written to us, though it is written to us. It is secondarily written to us. So he could have just been describing conditions in his day. He isn't necessarily describing the entire church age. But I would also say that even if he were describing the entire church age, that wouldn't necessarily mean the gospel can't make more and more progress until the knowledge of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. It could simply mean that throughout the total of church history, maybe more people will have not been saved than those who do get saved. But even if that ends up happening, it could still be that before Christ's return, the gospel will have made major progress in every nation. So that's the narrow uh, gate. There's also a narrow door. Let's look at Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to him, Strive to enter, enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you began to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. So I think it's 
I think Jesus might be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem here. And there's a few reasons I think that. First off, this happens, this shows up in Luke just before Jesus makes his lament over Jerusalem. So in the same chapter in Luke 13 in verses 31 through 35, we read, At that very hour some Pharisees came to him, and he said to them, uh, no, and they said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform, perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the immediate context, um, you know, in this chapter, Jesus is talking about the coming of de destruction against Jerusalem to at least some degree because this is right before his lament over Jerusalem. But also in verse 28, he says to the Jews he is speaking to that at the time that this narrow door gets closed, that they will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but they themselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. Now, some people would think this is talking about the final judgment, and it could be, but it very well could be describing God judging the Jews and sending the gospel to the Gentiles. I think it probably is. Because, you know, the Jew, Christ came, the Jews forsaked Christ and went and listened to the gospel even after he was raised from the dead, and then judgment came against Jerusalem, and the gospel goes out to all nations. That sounds like this. Not only that, but something that I think doesn't fit very well with the idea that this is talking about the final judgment, is that Jesus says, you yourselves will be cast out, and he says it to the Jews. But if this, talking, if this is talking about the final judgment, how does that work with the idea that Israel is going to be restored in some sense before Christ comes back? Because of Romans 11, premillennialists, postmillennialists, and amillennialists basically all agree that in the future there's going to be some type of restoration for Israel. And if this passage is talking about the final judgment, how does that work with that idea? But if he is talking about 70 AD then many will seek to enter the narrow door and not be able to, could just be referring to that time period and not to the entire church age, or it might not even have to do with eternal salvation. It might have to do with uh, being able to escape the judgment that would come on Jerusalem. You know, many wanted to escape that judgment and weren't able. And then the last passage we are going to address is the many are called but few are chosen passage from Matthew 22. Let's read Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. 
And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call all those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves and have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find." And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him to the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, there's a few things I want to say about this passage. First off, verses 1 through 10 are definitely talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, So verse 1, in verse 1, Jesus says that this is a parable. Um, So this isn't a literal wedding feast. This is a figurative wedding feast that represents the kingdom because he said the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So this, this is representing the kingdom of heaven. The guests who were invited were the Jews, and Jesus sent them prophets and messengers and evangelists, and they treated them shamefully and killed them. Verse 7 says, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This is clearly a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was burned to the ground as part of God's judgment against it. And then the servants going out into the streets and inviting everyone they can find represents the gospel going out to the Gentile nations. So verses 1 through 10 are definitely talking about 70 AD. Um, Verses 11 through 13 seem to be talking about after 70 AD and describing a false convert who entered the kingdom, but not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because uh, the king come up to, comes up to him and says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He's not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and he's thrown out of the kingdom. Because he, he wasn't really in the kingdom. And then, vor, verse 14 says, for many are called, but few are chosen. So, verse 14, which says many are called, but few are chosen, might Uh, be talking about both parts of the passage, but it's certainly at least talking about the first parts of the passage where all the Jews were called, where all the wedding guests who were going to be invited were invited. It's definitely at least talking about that, but it might also be talking about the time after that. So I would say there's some chance this is just talking about the first century, but it could be talking about the entire church age. Both are possible. But even if this is talking about the entire church age, it's still possible that gospel progress will get better and better until Christ returns. Especially since there's no real good way to interpret the passages that say, that basically say that that will be. 
But if the gospel makes more and more progress such that eventually the majority of nations become mostly Christianized, since that happening will have taken more than 2,000 years at least, it's possible that in the grand scheme of things, throughout the total of church history, more people uh, might not have been saved than those who do get saved. Uh, That might be the case, that might not be the case. But either way, we still have to reconcile this passage with the other passages that say the kingdom of heaven is going to grow and grow until it fills the earth. And even if, even if the idea or the statement that uh, many are called but few are chosen applies to the entire church age, which it might and it might not, it's still, it would still fit that the kingdom of heaven would grow and grow until it does fill the whole earth. So in conclusion... Uh, the Bible does certainly teach that the kingdom of heaven will grow till it fills the earth. We saw that clearly in Daniel chapter 2 and clearly in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 13 and 16. And even though it might not be absolutely certain that um, how much progress it's going to make, there's still good reason to think that the Bible teaches that the gospel will make huge, huge progress throughout the whole world before Christ's second coming. And my explanation of the narrow door passages might not be as satisfactory as I would like, but out of all the views on the future, none of them are without issue. All the views have problem passages. And even though this view might have some difficulties, I think it has less difficulties than the views that the gospel will make a little amount of progress or a moderate amount of progress. So that brings us to our communion meditation. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, true faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. According to the Bible, our salvation is entirely the result of God's grace. None of it is a result of our good deeds or works. And this is by God's design. Because even though God saves us for our sake, he also saves us for his glory. But one of the best things about salvation being by grace alone is that because there's nothing we could do to earn it, there's nothing we can do to make God change his mind about it. Because he saved us when we didn't deserve it, he'll continue to love and forgive us even though we'll continue to not deserve it. So let's praise him as we come to the table.